How's everybody doing? Good. My name is Andy, as you've been told already, and I am the uh, new campus patter, uh, pastor at our Freeport location. And it's my privilege and my honor uh, to bring to you God's word this morning. Um, I want to take a moment just to thank you all so much for uh, your hospitality. Debbie and I have never heard of what we never heard of Catanning, Pennsylvania before in our lives. We when we first saw it, it was like Kittening, Pennsylvania, somewhere up there, I don't, I don't know. Um, but we've been welcomed with open arms. We've experienced a lot of hospitality and love from you guys, and we really appreciate it. And we too are expecting our third as well, so we're excited. Thank you. Um, so it is, it, again, it is a privilege. So thank you all so much for, for just how much you've loved on us. We've really appreciated it. Um, today, as, uh, as you heard, we're going to be picking up in the book of Mark in chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. So if you will, please turn in your Bibles with me. Um, I am going to read the full text first, and then we're going to dive right in. Give you a moment to get there. All right, I'm assuming you're there. All right. John, or Mark chapter 6, verse 1 says, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simeon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He went about among the villages teaching and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two, excuse me, two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Uh, there, there's perhaps uh, no sin that has a greater consequence than that of unbelief. Without it, without belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will spend an eternity in hell. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 that without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith or, or belief is a non-negotiable component in the Christian life. John 3:16 tells us that whosoever believes in him, in Jesus, will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus is commissioning his church to go into a world to minister to, to people, to, to this, this world that he's created that is enslaved. It's in bondage to unbelief. And, and we, his people, are the means by which God is proclaiming his good news, his gospel, his message of liberation and freedom from that bondage to the nations. And there are going to be times when we are um, when, we, when we go out, we preach, we proclaim with great zeal and with great passion, and we will be respected and we'll be heard. People will receive that gospel. Lives will be changed. But, there's that, but there will also be times when we go out into that same world, ministering to people who are in bondage to unbelief, and they will reject us 
And they will ignore that message, that message of Jesus Christ. Now, either way, we are, pro- we are fulfilling our mandate to love people and proclaim salvation to everyone. We've been given a mighty gift, this gift of the gospel, this good news, this message of liberation. These seeds have spread out as far and wide as we can, and we believe and trust that the Lord Jesus Christ in his sovereignty will handle the growth. I love the vision uh, here at Harvest that we will, uh, that, that we, ex- we exist to increase the size and health of God's church everywhere. And if you'll remember a few, uh, a few months ago, Pastor Mike, when he was up here talking about it, he said that we cheated when we came up with that because we can't do any of the growing. We trust and we, we have to depend upon God to do that growth. And that is what we believe he does as we spread out these seeds of the gospel. Now, uh, if you'll remember back in September, we began uh, a, a series in the book of Mark um, and that had a subtitle that said, The Beginning of the Good News of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that subtitle came directly from the opening verse in the book of Mark. And, and the, the author, Mark, is letting us in on, on the identity of Jesus. He is indeed the Son of God, and he's doing that. It, it's significant because throughout the book of Mark, we actually see um, the several encounters where Jesus is, is interacting and ministering to people. He, he's performing miracles, and he's teaching, and, he, and the people who he's ministering to often ask themselves, who is this man? And now we know Mark has told us he's the son of God, but we read and we learn in anticipation and wait, when will they figure out who this guy is? This guy's here to save them. He, he is their redemption. He is their absolute hope. And so we read that in anticipation and we wait for that moment. Now Jesus, after he is baptized and is tempted um, in the wilderness, he then launches his public ministry with this message. He says, uh, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe the gospel. And as he went about the region of Galilee teaching these things, the people of that region were astonished. They're absolutely amazed at the authority that he spoke with. He was, he, he was casting out demons. He was uh, healing the sick, uh, terminal diseases. He even calmed a great sea on the Sea of Galilee until finally in the last sermon that we had in the book of Mark preached by Pastor Scott he, he preached on, on this passage where Jesus raised this 12-year-old girl from the dead. And it's very easy for us to read that. I'm like, yeah, that, that happens all the time in the Bible. It's no big deal. No, guys, Jesus raised a 12-year-old girl from the dead. Like, if that happened today, we would be dumbfounded. And that's a big deal because Jesus is displaying his authority, not only in the teaching of God's word, but he's displaying his authority over weather and over death itself. And at this point, you can only imagine the disciples. Man, it wasn't long ago that they were just, that they were uh, fishing and, and collecting taxes or doing whatever it was they were doing when this random dude came along, calling them to follow him. Turns out this guy's a pretty good teacher, and now he's performing these mighty miracles. He's got power over death, and nothing is impossible for this guy. I mean, it's almost as if, you know, we could walk into Jerusalem right now and just tell Rome to get out. Or, or maybe better yet, we just go into the city of Rome and set up our own global empire, placing Israel at the center. Jesus clearly had the power to do it. But that's not what Jesus does. Now, um, what, what I find amazing is, as I mentioned, like everybody so far, there's no person in the book of Mark so far that 
knows who Jesus is, this identity of Jesus, that he is indeed the son of God, except for the demons that Jesus is casting out. So far, they're the only ones who are afraid of him because they know who he is. Everybody else, not so sure. Well, Jesus, after reaching what I would argue at, at this point so far is kind of the pinnacle of his ministry. He's raised this little girl from the dead and, and he decides to do something. He decides to go home. Verse one, he went away from there and came to his hometown. Now this, now his hometown is this little tiny insignificant town um, called Nazareth and, and nothing really good comes from Nazareth. In fact, it was a common thing to say of that time can anything good really come from Nazareth? We can read that elsewhere in, in the book of John. Uh, one of Jesus' disciples, before he began following, said that very thing. So Nazareth had very little, little to offer any of the surrounding areas, but this is the place where our Lord chose to, to, to live for the first uh, 30 or so years of his time on earth. Now, this is not the first time that Jesus had been to Nazareth. Nearly about a year, or that's our best guess, about a year before Jesus was there already. And you can read that account in the book of Luke, chapter 4. And in that account, it's before Jesus had called any of his disciples to him. He's sitting in on Sabbath services, and he is handed from the attendant a scroll, the scroll of Isaiah. And he unrolls it, and he finds Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, and he reads this. This is what he, said, this is what he reads to the people out loud in the synagogue. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus, he sat down, gave the scroll back to the attendant, and then he said this, all eyes on Jesus. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now at first, everybody thought real well of him. They were astonished at his gracious words, but as their amazement began to grow, they remembered, oh wait, isn't this the guy from like here? No, no, he's one of us. He's just the, he's the son of that carpenter, right? And as they were talking amongst themselves, Jesus launched into this very confrontational message. And I'm not going to get into all of that right now. You can read about that yourself. But the result of that message was that the people of the synagogue were filled with such great wrath that they drove him to the edge of a cliff with the intention of killing him. And Jesus, he escaped at the last minute. And Jesus is going back to that hostile environment. This is his choice. He's going back there to minister to these people who are in bondage, who are enslaved by unbelief. And this time, of course, he's not going by himself. By this time, he's called his disciples, and we see, and his disciples followed him. Now, this is important for two reasons. One, uh, this, uh, him bringing along his disciples kind of verifies his rabbinical status. To, to be, just like it is to be a teacher, uh, to, to be a teacher, you must kind of have these students to teach, right? If you're not teaching, you're not really a teacher. In the same way, a rabbi, which means teacher, needs disciples, which means students, in order to be a rabbi. And so he brings them with him, and this gives him a, a couple of privileges as the traveling rabbi. 
Because he is a traveling rabbi, he kind of gets the priority to teach on Sabbath morning. But that's not the only reason. I do believe the primary reason that Jesus brought his disciples with him is because they've been observing Jesus' ministry. They've observed his popularity growing with the exception of maybe uh, the scribes and the Pharisees who, who weren't fans of him. And even his family, we learned in Mark chapter 3 that they actually at one point came to try and stop him because they believed Jesus to be out of his mind. But that doesn't stop our Lord and, and, and he wants to teach and to train his disciples in rejection. They, they've seen how to respond to popularity because the people loved him despite how the Pharisees and the scribes and his own family felt about him. The people that he ministered to loved him. And now he's going to show his disciples how to, um, how to handle that kind of rejection. So Jesus goes into the synagogue, verse 2, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Now what were they astonished by? They were astonished by the wisdom that was given him and the mighty works that were done by his hands. They were, I find the fact that they're amazed at his wisdom still. I mean, if you'll remember, like we just talked about in Luke 4, they couldn't stand him. And yet, they could not deny the unique way in which Jesus taught the word. I mean, can you imagine being taught the scriptures by the guy who inspired it, by the guy who knows everything behind it? He's got all the knowledge about all the things that we still have trouble understanding. What a great honor it would have been to be taught by Jesus. And they're learning from him and they're amazed. It's almost as if Jesus himself was the one guiding the pen of the authors of the scriptures. And then they're amazed at his mighty works. No doubt the mighty works that he'd been doing in the surrounding villages had reached the ears of the people in Nazareth. And they're amazed by it. And it's almost like, oh, speaking of his hands, speaking of the mighty works of his hands, wait, isn't this guy also... The carpenter. It's, it's the same thing that we saw in the Luke chapter 4. They're like, wait, no, this guy was the carpenter here. And more than likely, this is a small town. Jesus probably worked on several projects in this town for multiple people. He probably helped a guy build a stable, probably helped somebody uh, build a fence or, or put a door on their house. And they're like, this guy from Nazareth, that like village handyman, that guy, really. Furthermore, the mother, furthermore, then it says in verse 3, the son of Mary. Now, um, at first glance, when we read this as Westerners, we don't really think anything of that text. We kind of gloss over it. But to refer to Jesus by his mother's name is actually incredibly insulting to Mary herself. Because in those days, you would refer to somebody by their father's name, Jesus, the son of Joseph. Or, or, you know, we, we read about uh, Simon Peter, the son of Jonah, or, or, and so on. But in this case, they say Jesus, the son of Mary, which assumes that she did not have a husband. And they would have said that whether or not he was, Joseph was dead or not. There's some controversy there, but um, typically, generally speaking, in that context, whether he was dead or not, they still would have said this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. But they talked of Mary as though she had Jesus out of wedlock essentially calling Mary a whore and Jesus her illegitimate offspring, which must have been painful to hear for Jesus to hear, knowing we know of Mary's character. We remember reading that in Luke 1 and 2 about how she was favored by God and her, her, how she submitted to the will of the Lord when she was called to carry the Son of God. 
and yet they're so careless with what they say about her. And then they go on, and they say, wait, and, and isn't this also the, the brother of, of James and Joseph and Judas and, and Simeon? Now, fun fact about his brothers, James is probably the guy who actually wrote the book of James and became a prominent elder in the church of Jerusalem, which you can read about him in the book of Acts. And his brother Judas is probably the guy who wrote the book of Jude. What it wouldn't take for us to get our siblings to, love, to, to call us God and much less write books about us. But... None, nonetheless, they're, they're, they're attacking his family. They're attacking his, his origin, saying, this guy from Nazareth, the carpenter, the, not, not even born from like a respectable family, him. He's the guy who has authority over us and is doing these miracles? No. And it says they took offense at him. Now, just real quick, Jesus was offensive, absolutely offensive. But I, I just want to point out here that this was not his aim. Jesus did not wake up every morning like, all right, who can I offend today? What, can, what off-color remark can I say today to make somebody angry? That's not what he was trying to do. His aim was to point them to himself, say, look, you have a problem. It is sin. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through me, and that in itself is offensive. He was never afraid of being offensive, but that was never his aim, and we as Christians should never make that our aim to purposely offend People. And if you ever hear something that you find offensive from the pulpit here at Harvest, I want you to know none of that is done out of the intention of purposefully being offensive. We are trying to, uh, to, 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 to communicate the truth that we see in the word. And if you still find something offensive, we encourage you to come and talk to us. We'd love to talk to you more about it. But this is not our aim. Our aim is to love by sharing the truth of God's word. Now Jesus responds in verse 4 with this. This is what he says to their objections of him uh, being uh, the Messiah, being this miracle worker. He says, and he said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus is essentially saying, I get it. Your familiarity with me has bred contempt. I know. And what I mean by that is that the more knowledge we have of someone or something, more than likely, it's much, e it's much easier for us to lose respect for that. And we, we can sit here as Christians and be like, but Jesus is right in front of them. There, there are eyewitnesses to these miracles. How can they grow in such contempt towards Jesus? And, and I'm telling you, this is far too common among us. His church, the people whom he has saved. I mean, we hear the gospel every single week. Harvest is very faithful to preach the gospel in every sermon that is proclaimed from this pulpit. And yet, how often during the week do we fall to our knees in gratitude to the Lord and Savior of our lives who's rescued us? We've been created from dirt to reflect God's image, to glorify him. And he gave us everything that we needed to flourish, to have joy, to be totally satisfied in him. And we shook our fists at almighty God. We pounded our chest in rebellion and said, we knew better. And God would have been just and right on that spot to kill us then and there. And he 
didn't because he's full of compassion and he's full of grace and he's full of mercy and he loves to save sinners. And the way in which he did it, the way in which he satisfied his law was to send his son, Jesus Christ, as a substitutionary sacrifice, the atonement for us. And the Bible tells us it pleased the Father to crush him on that cross. And the blood that was shed purchased the sin, purchased the, the lives and the souls of those who would believe and repent and b- believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and it's not now that we've been, ju- now we've been declared just before God the Father because of what his son did. And we've been imputed with the righteousness of Jesus. And, we, and, and because of that, God no longer looks at us as rebellious sinners. We've been adopted as sons and daughters And he now looks at us, looks on us with pleasure because we're his kids. And now he is is guarding our inheritance with the mighty power of God because we've been raised to life with Jesus Christ and he is victorious over sin and death because he's been raised. This is nothing to grow in contempt about. This is everything. He is our everything. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about Jesus. He says, if Christ must be anything... He absolutely must be our everything. So let us not grow contempt towards this good news. God has done a mighty work on our behalf. Now we reach verse five, and this is where things get a little dicey. It says, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled at their unbelief. Now I've heard this text twisted and, and, and destroyed so many times and I'm really tired of it because the answer is so simple. It sits right here because at first, if, if you're like the majority of people, we, we look at it and we say, wait, Jesus could do nothing. He couldn't do any mighty work. Why? Because we didn't believe? Well, that seems contradictory to the rest of scripture that talks about how God is sovereign, how Jesus is omniscient and how he is all powerful and knows all things. So because the Bible teaches that, we know that can't be right, so we need to dig deeper. We need to look at the verse, and we'll read it again. Verse 5, and he could do no mighty work there, comma, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Clearly, Jesus' hands were not actually tied. He was not immobilized, because despite their unbelief, he still healed them. He still healed some people. But now there's, there's difficulty here, and I, and I understand that. And I'm going to use kind of a, an extreme example to kind of illustrate what I believe is happening here. So if I, had a, if I had the opportunity to shoot somebody, I had a gun, bullets, and a finger to pull the trigger, I would be perfectly capable of doing so, right? But if the person who I, was, I had the opportunity of shooting had done nothing wrong to me. They weren't hurting anybody else. They had done nothing immoral. I would be morally unable to do that, right? Not that I was incapable, but morally I would not be able to. And we get some help on this text as well. In Matthew chapter 13, verses 53 to 58, there's a parallel account to this very moment. And quick tip if you're having a hard time with a text in the Bible, find, use the, you, uh, most Bibles have this thing called a cross-reference in the middle that have verses that speak to those difficult, hard verses that you're looking at. 
Use it. It's helpful. And if you look at your cross-reference here, it would take you to this very passage in Matthew. And it's almost verbatim of what we already read in Mark, with a couple of exceptions. One of those exceptions being in verse 58 of Matthew 13. And that's, this is what it says. And he did not do many mighty works there. Why? Because of their unbelief. So my conclusion to this is simply Jesus could not because he would not. Just as I would have been morally incapable of not uh, shooting somebody who had done nothing wrong, Jesus, and this is your first map point, was morally compelled not to show his power because of their unbelief. What was Jesus' message when he launched his ministry? Repent and what? Believe the gospel. This becomes more of an obedience issue than anything else. They're refusing to believe the good news of Jesus, and Jesus is not going to reward them by showing his power. You following me? Does that make sense? All right. So as we said then, earlier, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, it, it tells us, as I mentioned before, without faith, it's absolutely impossible to please God. We must have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe, if we believe that he indeed has saved us, and he indeed is working in this world, and he's using us to proclaim, we must believe in his power. Without that belief, without that faith, we will not be able to please him. And if we want to please God, this is your second map point, and know his power, then we must believe that the God revealed to us in the Bible exists and acts equitably on behalf of his children. It is very easy to say that we believe in God, and it's a lot harder to say, but we also believe that he acts and he moves equally on behalf of his children. You following me? So we need to make sure that when we are when we are going about our, our daily lives, when we are trying, have, have you ever had that time where you've been sharing your faith with somebody and they just seem like they're not getting it? Right? They're, they're just not getting it. We need to trust that the, the seeds of the gospel that we have planted will be handled by God. We, 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 we often fall into this trap that we are the ones who are going to cause growth in people's lives. No, we trust and believe that God is the one acting. We are handling his gospel. We're sharing his gospel. We're being faithful to do so. And we trust and we believe because we can't beat ourselves up whether or not somebody comes to Jesus. If we've done our part, we've, we have shared this gospel. We've been the means God is going to handle that growth. Now, how does, now if you're, now we, we've been stuck. We were not stuck, but we've been in this. And I don't want you to forget what's going on. There's a dialogue happening in the synagogue. If you'll remember with me, the people are in the process of rejecting Jesus. And he just got done telling them that, you know, their, their familiarity with him has bred this contempt. And they're still offended by him. They, last time they tried to kill him, now they're offended by him. How does he handle that rejection? It's actually quite surprising. It says, he went about among the villages teaching. He left. He went somewhere else. He shared the, he gave them the gospel, and then he left. And now it's a good thing that the disciples have been observing him this whole time. They, they watched him become very popular among the people. He went to Nazareth. He got rejected. And they got to see how Jesus responded to all of this. If you'll notice, Jesus never really got defensive, right? 
He just accepted the rejection and moved on. And Jesus never, when he was growing in popularity, he, he wasn't like uh, building himself up. He was telling people not to tell anybody about him. So even when we are successful in sharing our faith and souls are one, we, we don't boast in our ability. We boast in the power of God and what he has done. And it's a good thing these disciples have been watching him and observing him because it's their turn to begin ministering to this world of unbelief. And we see in verse 7, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. Now Jesus um, is probably sending them out two by two. One, to, to respect the, the, the Mosaic law, if a uh, Mosaic law where to verify a testimonial claim about something, you need at least two witnesses. They're testifying that Jesus is the Messiah. They have two witnesses. But another reason that Jesus is probably sending them out in, in, in pairs, and I believe this to be um, the primary reason, is frankly, ministering to a world of unbelief is hard. It's just difficult. And each and every one of us, whether we are in vocational ministry or, we are, or, or, or we're working in some other field, are, have our own spheres of ministry. The people you interact with, your employer, your employee, if, 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 your, your children, your spouse, your friends, whoever it is that you are with on a regular basis throughout the week, that is your sphere of ministry. And so we are called to do that. And, when, and, and it's, some, it's hard to do that because it, when you are rejected, it, it can become very discouraging, especially if it happens over and over and over again. And you need people beside you to pray with you, to encourage you, to build you up. And if you're wrong, you need somebody you love and trust to correct you. The author of Ecclesiastes makes this observation, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to pick him up. It's Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. Jesus is simply equipping his disciples to move into this mission field because he's called them to what? Be fishers of men. And he's preparing them for this. And then it says, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He gave them authority over the unclean spirits. <laughs> Jesus has then gave them his authority to minister on his behalf so that when they would go out, whether they were rejected or received, they went out representing their master. So when they were rejected... They were rejecting Christ himself. And when they were received, they were receiving Christ himself. This is why we can't take rejection from people personally when we are ministering to them. We can't because it's not us that they're rejecting. They're rejecting the truth of God's word. Jesus really makes this, really takes a lot of this weight off of our shoulders. Because it's, it's not about our ability. It's not about all the things that we can do. It's about depending on him and trusting in him. Because it's not about whether we are rejected or received. It's all about whether he is. And we are proclaiming his good news. We're sharing him. We're pointing people to Christ, to seeing his magnificence, to seeing his glory. And then he, Jesus gives them some very specific instructions on how they are to travel. Verse 8, he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on 
to tunics. Now, it's easy to read that and say, man, Jesus is just trying to make things hard for them. Don't take any food. Don't take any provisions. No extra clothes. You know, take a staff, protect yourself, you know, and help you walk. Wear some shoes, make sure your feet don't get all beat up. But other than that, don't worry about it. What's Jesus trying to tell his disciples here? He's trying to make this point. This is your third map point. That the church, his disciples, his people, must depend on Christ to make provisions for the mission that he has set us on. Jesus does not commission us to go into the world and make disciples without equipping us and providing, providing for us the things that we need to accomplish the very mission he set us on. He doesn't set us up for failure. And, and sometimes it's, it's really hard to, it, it's a lot easier to say that, right? Because there, there are times where we don't, the, there's a lot of things going on at Harvest right now, right? There's, there's so much going on. Uh, we have the opportunity to reach a lot of people and there's sometimes where, where we're, we second guess ourselves because we, we, our own human whims and ideas get in the way, when we need to be depending on Christ, if he's called us to, to increase the size and health of God's church anywhere, then, which, by the way, just comes right out of the um, Great Commission, going into all the world to make disciples. If that's what he's called us to, then he's going to provide for it. And we trust in his sovereignty and his goodness to do that and then in verse 10, he says, whenever you enter a house and stay there, until, stay there until you depart from there. Who are these people who the disciples go to and just receive them in? These strangers they've never heard of before, claiming that there is a Messiah. You see, more often than not, Jesus, the means, the, the means that Jesus provides to, to um, work in his ministry, to, to provide the funds and the support for his ministry, are people. And that is how he provided for his disciples here. He provided people as the means to, to, to cause their mission to be, to, to, cause, to, to accomplish his mission. And there's a good example of this in Romans chapter 10 where uh, Paul writes, he, he writes this, he says, how will those who are called call upon him who they've not heard of? And how will they hear of him if they don't have a preacher, and how will they have a preacher if a preacher is not sent? The purpose of that text is telling us that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. Now the irony of that is Romans chapter 9, the, the, the chapter prior to that, is all about God's sovereign election. It's all about how God um, sovereignly elects and, and saves people. And, but he does that through the means of people. People who, who practice hospitality. People who are generous with what they have. And this is your fourth math point, map point. Jesus provides means by which his mission is both supported and funded. His means of choice is people. Now verse 11 then gives us instructions on what to do if people reject us. Right? I mean, the disciples, I mean, they're like, yeah, Jesus, this is all great if, <laughs> if we're being received, right? We saw you get received, but then we just left Nazareth and we see that you were rejected. They hated you. Like a year ago, like you told us that they tried to kill you. So what do we do then? And he tells them, if, and if any place, this is verse 11, will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, 
Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. What is up with the dust and the shaking off thing? You know, when I first read this, I was like, I guess that Jesus is just telling them to just shake it off, move on. And, and I think that is what he's getting at, but there's something deeper underneath here as I did some more digging. Apparently, pious Jews back then would often shake the dust off of their feet when they would leave a pagan nation or village as, as a prophetic way of disassociating themselves from that pagan village and the judgment that was impending upon them. Now, when the disciples did this, it was not prophetic. It was far more symbolic, saying, you have rejected Christ, therefore you are pagan. And who knows, maybe, maybe this gesture made, caused people to think deeply about their spiritual condition. Maybe some people were brought to grace through this. We don't know. But I do believe that the, the primary purpose of this text is if people aren't listening, it's time to go. And that's your fifth math point. The church is called to be the prophetic voice of God, warning people of the coming judgment. Now, I'm not saying, I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, I'm, when I say that, I'm not talking about new revelation or anything like that. I'm saying we've been given the gift of the gospel that tells us that to become right with God, they must depend, they must rely and believe in, in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of their sin. And so we are calling people to that repentance, to that salvation, because Jesus is coming back to judge those who are not, who have not believed in him and to rescue his church, his bride. And we have been entrusted with that, so we prophetically go into all of the world and share that. But there are also times when we must shake the dust off of our feet and move on to the next village. Now I want you to hear my heart. On this, like, look at me. This is not. I'm not saying that the people who, who um, have rejected us. I'm not saying we forget. I'm not saying we just like. Well, it sucks to be you, and we move on. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that we have given the, these people the gospel. We have proclaimed. We've been faithful in that. They haven't. We re- haven't received it. So, it, so we step away. We trust in God's sovereignty to move in the hearts of those people. We continue praying for those people, loving those people, and then we move on to the people who will receive the gospel. And it really is a test of our faith to, to, to after we've given people the gospel and then we decide to move on. It's really a test of our faith. And if we see people then coming to the Lord Jesus Christ, we run to them and we love them and we embrace them. But there are times when we must move on. Verse 12, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. This is vital to the mission that God has set us on. Our sixth map point, sixth map point our message is Christ's message. We have got to stop adding and taking away from that. Years ago, I had a pastor tell me that Jesus never taught repentance. <laughs> I, I, was, I kind of chuckled and I said, what are you talking about, man? Like, I took him to, this, I took him to the beginning of Mark. I said, Jesus clearly said, repent and believe the gospel. He said, yeah, but repentance meant something different then than it does now. That's not true. Repentance simply means to change one's mind, to turn and look to Jesus, right? And, and, and we don't change that. We don't take away from that. And we also don't add. We don't say, repent and believe the gospel and all of your worries and troubles will be done. We don't tell people repent and believe the gospel, say, and expect all these extra things to take place. That's not true. 
Jesus promised us life and life abundantly in him. He's given us total life and joy in him. We depend upon him for those things. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Now, I, I, I don't know about you, but if I were the disciples at this point, and they were given the authority to go cast out demons, and they were experiencing these things, I mean, remember, it was not long ago where they were just humble fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, and, and, and people with different occupations. This was nothing that they were planning on doing with their life, and now they're laying hands on people and healing them. They're experiencing a foretaste of what was to come when at Pentecost the Holy Spirit would descend upon the church and empower them for global impact, for global expansion. And this this text reminds me of John chapter 14, verse 12, where Jesus tells his disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. So does that mean that we will do all that Jesus has done? I mean, that's kind of amazing, right? If Jesus is saying that we will accomplish the things that he has accomplished, that's incredible. Is it because we have more power, more capability than him? Absolutely not. No, because, let's be real, we cannot die on the cross for the sins of the world. We, We can't do that. We cannot descend from heaven, put on flesh, and become a man. We cannot do that. So what is Jesus saying here? What does he mean that we will do mightier works than he? Because clearly it's not because we have have more power than he does. We have like secondhand power by the Holy Spirit to, to proclaim in faith the good news of Jesus Christ. But we don't possess the power that Christ had. Now, I have a story here that I think illustrates this very well, and I'm going to read it so I don't miss anything. I found this to be very helpful as I was looking at this text. During the war in the Pacific, a sailor on a United States submarine was stricken with acute appendicitis. The nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. Pharmacist mate Weller Lipes watched the seaman's temperature rise to 106 degrees. His only hope was an operation. And Leip said, he said, listen, I've seen other doctors do this before. I think I can do it. What do you say? This guy's a pharmacist. Let's not forget that. Well, this guy, this sailor consented. And so they laid the sailor out on a table in a small room beneath a floodlight. And the assisting officers and the mate dressed themselves in reverse pajama tops. They put on, um, they, they, they masked their face with gauze. The crew stood by the diving planes to keep the ship steady. The cook boiled water for sterilizing. A tea strainer served as an antiseptic cone. A broken-handled scalpel was the operating instrument. Alcohol drained from the torpedoes was the antiseptic, and bent tablespoons served to keep the muscles open. After cutting through layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two and a half hours later, the last stitch was sewn just as the last drop of ether gave out. 13 days later, the patient was back at work. Now, was Leipz greater than any surgeon? No. But did he do a better work? Did he do a greater work than the surgeon? 
Yeah. A surgeon would have probably done that much quicker than 20 minutes. He has all the right tools. His scalpel is sharp. It's just a quick, um, you know, it's just a quick procedure. It's a pretty common procedure. But Leibs used what he had. It's not because we're greater than Jesus. It's, it's because we are frail human beings. And we act not on our own power, but we act in his power. Uh, this is your last map point. Belief in the power of Christ enables Christians to operate by the power of the Holy Spirit on behalf of Jesus. It ultimately, listen, we are, we are set on mission. We're, we're looking at this contrast between belief and unbelief, right? The Nazarenes did not believe. They refused to believe in Jesus. And he was morally compelled not to show his power to them. And then as his disciples went out and trusted in the power of Christ and depended upon him, they were successful in their mission. And we are on mission. And it is us who are, <laughs> it's amazing, we who knowing who we are, where we've come from, that it is us. We are those broken instruments that God has chosen to use and he is deploying these broken instruments as his troops to go into this unbelieving world to proclaim his good news. This is an amazing opportunity for each and every one of us. Now as the broken instrument before you, I want to, I want to share with you this. I want to encourage you in this because hear me, I'm not saying that we can get better at our faith because we can't. I, I'm telling you that we need to believe and, and that our faith needs to increase. And that's true, it does. But we can't do that. We need to have the attitudes of the disciples and say, Lord, increase our faith. Or elsewhere in the Gospels, some of the people Jesus was ministering to, they said, Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let that be our prayer. And if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus, I want to close with this because it's all about our dependency upon him. Jesus appeals to you. He says this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Aren't you tired? I mean, the climate of our culture is exhausting. I mean, we're in Hunger Games 2020, people. This is, this is the, the, the presidential race. And it's exhausting. Let that not be our hope. And no doubt we each, you know, we, we, no doubt each and every one of us have friends who, who completely disagree with us, with us on certain things. We argue with them until we're blue in the face, but that's not what is the most important thing. Our import, the important thing that we need to be focusing on is our hope in Jesus Christ. And, and now sometimes it's fun to talk politics, don't get me wrong, but that should not be what gives us hope. Come to the Lord Jesus and he will give you rest. Take upon, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to the Lord Jesus, repent of your sin and believe in him. We depend on a mighty God.